and welcome to History Zine, show number one. My name's Jim, I shall be your host throughout the next goodness knows how many shows. History Zine will be a combination of general chat about historical issues, reviews of the many other fine historical podcasts out there, but the meats, the main meal, will be a reasonably in-depth focus on a particular era of history. And that first era that I shall be covering will be the War of the Spanish Succession. This is a European war, early 18th century, of fantastical complexity and absurdity. But more of that later. First, we're going to have a delve into some of my favourite podcasts. This week, I want to focus on History According to Bob. This is an incredibly enthusiastic podcast. And Bob himself absolutely adores what he does. His output is stunningly prolific. And I tell you what, so you can get some idea about Bob, I shall read the Who is Bob bit from his website. Who is Bob? Professor Bob Packett has been teaching history for 31 years. His passion for history permeates his entire life, from the thousands of primary resource materials in his personal library to his collection of historical artefacts. Professor Bob loves to tell stories of the real people behind the often sterile descriptions found in history texts. His conversational style, filled with anecdotes, quips and humour, will bring to life the characters of history. Now, through the technology of podcasting, you can also enjoy what Professor Bob's students have been enjoying for years. History that comes alive. So that will give you a bit of the background behind Bob, but don't take too much notice of the rather professional style of that little snippet. The tone of it actually puts me off a little bit. It, it looks like he's trying to sell me something. And in fact, he does try to sell the CDs online, but, you know, he's not asking a huge amount for them. And, of course, subscription to the podcast is actually free. The podcasts themselves are usually about 15 minutes long. So, of course, not hugely detailed, but they often do give you a fascinating little insight into things. Um, I'll give you a few examples of some podcasts I've listened to lately. There was the 1918 Overview. There's an overview of 1918, which tells of the Great German Offensive and then the turning of World War I at the Second Battle of the Marne. Also, he talks about the entry of the United States into the First World War. It's quite surprising just how much he does manage to cover in the 15 minutes of this episode. So what else have I listened to from Bob lately? Ah, yes, Oliver Cromwell. I I quite enjoyed this one. In this one, Bob did what he does best, really. He, He told some of the little stories around the big characters, like the Oliver Cromwell, the little story about the monkey when he was a little child, supposed to have taken Oliver Cromwell up onto the roof. Now, maybe this happened, maybe it didn't, but it's nice to have these little stories mixed in there. Now, just those two examples don't give you any idea of the breadth of subjects covered by Bob. There's everything from ancient Greek stuff to Wild West. He could be talking about Mesopotamia or China or France, Egypt, Britain, America. I mean, yes, they are quite short. They're little sort of snippet podcasts. More to give you a a taster of the subject than an in-depth knowledge. Sometimes he will cover things in slightly more depth. Uh, He went into the French Revolution in some depth, spreading that one out over several episodes. But I think for this podcast, really you're looking at it as a taster. 
and then he usually gives some book titles if you want to go out and have a look for yourself. So, that's my review of History Podcast for this episode. If you want to try History According to Bob for yourself, go across to www.summerhistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com. And now a little bit of historical trivia. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, burning the candle at both ends. Well, this phrase has its origins in the dim and distant past, when they had what are called reed candles. Now, these are candles that are held like, by a piece of metal in the middle. You have, it, um, you have it sort of propped bent round so that the bottom is in a base, and then the top is in a, like a clipper, and it clips hold of the reed... And normally you might not need so much light, but if you were feeling extravagant or if you had guests round, you might light the candle at both ends. This would give you more light, but it would burn your candle down twice as fast. So say you were working maybe at twilight, you would only need the candle lit on one side. But if you kept on writing into the night, you would of course need both sides of your candle lit. So working late into the night is burning the candle at both ends. And now to our main feature. The War of the Spanish Succession. A war of many countries and many people. But where do we start? I suppose we could start right at the beginning of the war. But then you'd have no idea why they were all fighting. I suppose really if we wanted to draw a complete picture we'd probably go back as far as the Romans. And then we can see how the different areas were divided and how the tensions grew up between these areas. But let's strike a compromise. I shall start my story at the death of Philip IV of Spain in 1665. This is 36 years before the start of the War of the Spanish Succession, but it gives us a decent run-up to it. And there's also quite a few wars that precede the War of the Spanish Succession that mostly concern the same areas, that is, the Spanish Netherlands. And so we can see all the manoeuvres around the Spanish Netherlands, and some of the different countries who all put in their bids for their own particular place in the Spanish succession. So, Philip IV dies, Charles II takes his place. Now, Charles II was always infirm, was never going to have any children, and this is saving us problems for the future. But from this point onwards, the whole of Europe knows there are going to be problems over the Spanish succession, and so they're all manoeuvring for position. For, despite the fact that the Spanish Empire is now on the decline, it's still a great prize. But back to the death of Philip IV. Louis XIV, the French king, had married Maria Theresa. Now, Maria Theresa was the daughter of Philip IV, but she had renounced all her claims to Spanish titles and territories upon the marriage to Louis. This renunciation, though, was conditional. It was conditional upon Spain paying quite a hefty dowry to France. Now, poor old Spain, struggling with rampaging inflation, didn't manage to pay that dowry. And so, once Philip IV had died, Louis's lawyers put in a claim that the Spanish Netherlands should devolve to Maria Theresa. And, of course, through Maria Theresa to her husband, Louis XIV. Now, in case you're wondering where the Spanish Netherlands are, they're on the borders of France and the Dutch Republic. Or, nowadays, they'd be called Belgium and a little bit of Holland. It reminds me, there's uh, some fascinating parallels Winston Churchill draws in his book on Marlborough between this time and the First World War. 
Winston Churchill sees that particular bit of Europe as extremely vital and strategically very important. But back to the story. Louis XIV is making a claim for the Spanish Netherlands. Spain contests this claim. Louis, not being a man who takes no for an answer, ups the stakes by moving his troops into the Spanish Netherlands on the 24th of May 1667. Spain has very few troops stationed in the Spanish Netherlands, so the French army meets with little resistance, marching through and one by one taking the towns of Chalroy, Tournay and Douai, with Lille managing to put up a little bit of resistance. Now France has always worried most of the other countries of Europe. It has a large population, it has vast resources, particularly food. There are some wonderfully fertile lands in France. And, of course, if you can feed a lot of people, you can raise a lot of soldiers. And so, seeing France suddenly expand like this, onto the even more fertile plains of Flanders, is a most unnerving experience indeed. As a result, in 1668, the Dutch Republic, England and Sweden combined to form an alliance. France was unprepared at this time to face a war on so many fronts. Plus, the ultimatum given by the alliance offered the French quite advantageous terms. France was allowed to keep some quite significant territory in Flanders. Louis agreed to these terms and pulled his troops out of the Spanish Netherlands and Franche Comte. So, does that get us to the Spanish succession? I'm afraid it doesn't. That's got us to 1668. We've got two more wars to go yet before we can go into the Spanish succession war. The one we've just covered was called the War of Devolution. And the next one, which kicks off in 1672, is known as the Dutch War, or the Franco-Dutch War. I think that gives you a clue as to some of the people involved. So, who were involved in this war? Well, you figure the first two out. There's France and Holland. France managed to pull in a couple of allies, with some nifty political footwork from Louis XIV and his ministers. England was offered some very attractive subsidies, and Charles II of England signed the Treaty of Dover in 1670. This was a secret treaty, and the English Parliament didn't actually know about this, although, of course, rumours were rife. Charles II actually needed the money and needed the backing of the French king, or he thought he needed the backing of the French king, to maintain his independence from the English Parliament, and therefore to maintain his position as divine ruler. So that's England as an ally of France something which very rarely happens, and the other ally is Munster, one of the powerful German states. So, this is actually a really fascinating war, but I'm going to cheat you out of it, I'm afraid. I'm going to skip through this quite quickly. I've promised you the War of the Spanish Succession, and we're going to get to it. Probably not in this episode, but certainly by the next one. But a quick skim through the highlights. The French army is the usual unstoppable force. Munster is able to attack from the east. This is a part of the Dutch Republic not as well fortified as that facing France. And England's job, well, England even then had a pretty good navy, so England's job was to attack along the coast. Now, England didn't make a particularly good job of this, and the wonderful Dutch admiral, Michel de Rutte, managed to outwit and outfight the Anglo-French fleet several times. By 1674, under pressure from Parliament, Charles had to withdraw England from the war against 
the Dutch Republic. It is in this war that we see the great figure of William of Orange enter upon the world stage. Now, I say a great figure, he's rather a gawky, miserable-looking figure, but he is, nonetheless, a great man. Now, he enters the world stage under a bit of a shadow in that his political opponent, Johann de Witt, is brutally murdered at just the right time for William to take power without the constraints that Johann de Witt would have put upon him. Now, I've implicated William rather heavily there, I suggest you read around the subject. There are definitely different opinions upon this. It does look a bit convenient for William to me, but we're having to sort back through all the propaganda of the time, and there were many people at the time and after that time only too keen to blacken the name of William of Orange. Now, we'll encounter this great Dutch leader a little bit later as... Quite shortly, he's going to pop up as the King of England. More of that later. So anyway, back to the Franco-Dutch War. The Dutch managed to stop the advance of the French by flooding the land, thus creating an impenetrable barrier of water. Well, almost impenetrable. It did actually freeze that winter and uh, the French army did get across. But then they got a little worried and went back again. So, we got a similar problem to last time in that the advance of the French had alarmed most of Europe. So, we got people coming to the side of the Dutch. We got uh, the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, Charles II of Spain, obviously, it's some of his land that is being taken over. We've got the Spanish Netherlands there. And the Elector of Brandenburg, also very worried about French expansionism. The war ends in 1678 with the Treaty of Nimwegen. Another treaty with some quite advantageous clauses for the French. Those French really knew how to drive a hard bargain at a peace conference. Now that's 1678. Nothing had really been decided. So there's obviously going to be another war. And this one is called the War of the Grand Alliance. It's going to be from 1688 to 1697. Louis Fourteenth is still a threat in Europe but William doesn't really feel he can take him on. However, something happens in the year 1688, which changes William's mind. In 1688, the English invite William to invade their country. Now, I know this sounds downright weird, but we had, at that time on the throne, James II. Now, there's a bit of history behind this. There's a bit of history behind the frustration that so many people had with the Stuart kings. So I'll rewind slightly with English history. During the 17th century in, in England, we had the English Civil War. Oliver Cromwell won the English Civil War. The Parliamentarians won the English Civil War. Charles I had his head chopped off. Now, there were miserable times after the war. There often is after any war. You're short of money, you're short of food, you're short of everything. We've also had what really amounts to a revolution, so it's a time of turmoil. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of unhappy people around. Their unhappiness was blamed on Cromwell and the parliamentarians. But Cromwell was too strong a ruler to move. He had the army with him. He ruled. He was a very strong ruler. So all the dissenting voices could do was grumble away in quiet corners. As soon as Cromwell died... His son lasted a matter of days. 
and there was a clamour for the return of a king. It seems most bizarre, but I think it's the usual thing of looking back to former times through rose-tinted glasses. So people thought of a king as something that could make everything right. Everything would be happy and lovely again. So, Charles II comes to the throne. Now, Charles II just about scrapes by, mainly because he's not that interested in rules, laws, changing things. Now and again he gets a flurry of excitement and gets involved, but mostly he just wants to have a good time. Still, he can't fix things, he can't wave a magic wand, so the country doesn't suddenly become richer, happier, etc. However, we just about managed to scrape through Charles II's reign. But then, we have James II. So we have the bad feeling coming back again against kings, and James II has an even worse flaw than being a king. He's a Catholic. Now, we've had the Reformation in this country. We've had all the burning of Catholics, the burning of Protestants. But here we are again with a Catholic on the throne, appointing Catholic ministers, appointing Catholic generals, and it looks like the whole religious horror is going to start again. William is invited to invade, and so he does, and he camps there on the shore, and one by one the generals go across to him. It looks at one time like there's going to be a mighty battle, but then we see... Another man who's going to feature later in our story, John Churchill, goes across to William's side. And so we have England's glorious revolution, the revolution of 1688, where hardly a drop of blood was spilt. William and Mary take the throne, and now William can use English troops to help fight in his war against Louis XIV. He joined forces with the Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold I, Spain and Sweden, to form the Defensive League of Augsburg, and they attempted to push France back to her borders, or the borders that everybody believed France should have, as designated in the Treaty of Westphalia. This war ended inconclusively in 1697, with the signing of the Treaty of Ryswick. I think it ended more through just sheer exhaustion on both sides, and the peace treaty was little more than a much-needed breather. The fighting will begin again in 1701, and that is the War of the Spanish Succession. And that will have to wait until next time. Bye for now.